We are jumping out of our Second Timothy series just for today, and we're going to head back into the Old Testament to pick up a message about being a blessing to others. We're calling us for the good of the city. And we're going to be in Jeremiah 29, and you can start to find that. Uh, but as you do, let me set the scene for you. So uh, let me take you way back, way back, way back to a man named Abraham. God had called Abraham to a new place. Abraham uh, flourished. He had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. Jacob uh, was a bit of a scoundrel and uh, moved about a little bit, covering, uh, protecting his life. But in the process, uh, Jacob had a number of sons, 12 sons, and God changed, renamed uh, Jacob to be Israel. And that we call him, uh, he became the father of the Israelite nation. The Israelites were uh, kind of placed in Egypt for a period of time. In fact, that kind of flourishing Egypt turned into slavery in Egypt for 430 years. A guy named Moses led them out of Egypt back into what we would call the promised land. Today's, today's where Israel is today and, and expanded territory. As they were there, they settled uh, the land under the leadership of what we would call the judges. Not kings, but but leaders of the nation, but still under God and under the worship of God. There was no temple at this point, but they, they worshipped in a, in a big tent called the tabernacle. Well, it reached the point where the people said, well, we notice all the other nations have kings. We want a king too. And God says, I'm, I'm the king. I'm your king. No, no, we want like a, a, a real king, a king with skin on. God relented and said, okay, you're going to regret it, but I'll let you have a king. And so that was King Saul. He was raised up and he was pretty strong militarily. He ruled for about 40 years, but his heart was not true to the Lord. His heart was not faithful to God. Uh, he was replaced eventually by a man named David, who we kind of think of as, as kind, of the, the, kind of the great king of Israel. David also ruled for about 40 years. David's son Solomon also ruled. For that period of time. But after Solomon, this nation of Israel split under the, both the son of Solomon named Rehoboam and another man named Jeroboam. And there was a civil war and they split into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The kings of the north typically were not very good. Guys like, you know, Ahab who were just wicked. Jeroboam himself was just terrible. And on it went. And that nation descended and descended and descended to worse and worse paganism until finally God said, I, I can't take this any longer. And he allowed the Assyrians to come and wipe out Israel to, in the, in the process, relocated them, dispersed them, and relocated other peoples into that portion of the northern kingdom. And it was never, it never returned. It never resurfaced. That was in 722 B.C. Well, the southern kingdom was watching all this, and you would think they would figure something out. They would learn their lesson, like, hey, we better behave, or the same thing's going to happen to us. But no, they were a little more haughty about it. You see, King Solomon had built the temple, the great Jewish temple, in Jerusalem. And they felt like, we've got the temple, we're good, nothing can ever harm us. We've got a beautiful building, we'll be fine. And so they worshipped, but they also worshipped other gods. They were unjust, they were unfair, they were unkind. And God sent prophet after prophet to warn them, look. Don't go down this path. It's not going to go well for you. Like, oh, we're fine. We're fine. Until God brought the Babylonian army, allowed Nebuchadnezzar and his army to conquer Jerusalem. I've got a slide there. You can show that, uh, Morgan, if you don't mind. And what 
what Nebuchadnezzar did, he began to deport the people of Israel from, you know, Jerusalem, you can see Jerusalem there where that big star is, and he took them to Babylon. You can imagine that trip today, you can just get in a plane, you know, you could fly from, well, you can't fly from Tel Aviv to Baghdad, but you could, you know, you could get there uh, somehow, or uh, in their case, overland probably was a two to three month journey into Babylon or modern day Iraq. And there they were. So you've got this, it's what we call the exile or the captivity. These people who had lived in relative safety and comfort and prosperity are now in a new place, much against their will. And a, a large portion of them, a, 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 of, of the Jews, a group of Jews, really the prosperous, educated, religious, religious, skilled, privileged of Jewish society had been had been taken far from their homes, far from the temple, far from their land. Everything that gave them identity as a people, they've been removed from that and they've been relocated and placed in Babylon. The temple at this point had not been destroyed, but that would come. There's actually two, kind of two waves of Nebuchadnezzar's uh, destruction of, of, uh, of Jerusalem. So not only are they away from everything they love, but they're in this hostile pagan land. I mean, imagine in your case, let's say you'd been forcibly removed. Let's say to that same area, let's say to Saudi Arabia. You're just there and you've been taken away from all the things that are comfortable for you, all the things that are familiar to you, everything you've loved and come to trust in your own ability. You're away from your bank account. You're away from your car, your home. You have nothing. And now you're in this place where they speak foreign languages. You're far away. Could you take it? Could you handle it? What would you do? Would you resist? Would you, would you try to fight back or look for a way to escape? How are you going to escape? Well, let's read the first portion of Jeremiah chapter 29 and see if we can't just put ourselves in the shoes of these people for a few moments because I think you're going to be surprised by what God instructed these people. Let's stand together for the reading of God's word. We're in Jeremiah chapter 29. And starting at verse 1, we're going to read 14 verses. And yeah, I do read the New Living Translation here too, Joe. Jeremiah 29, starting at verse 1. Well, Jeremiah, I should just say, he's a prophet. He's been called of God to speak messages to God's people. And he is still in Jerusalem as he writes this letter. Okay? 29. Jeremiah wrote a letter from Jerusalem to the elders, priests, prophets, and all the people who had been exiled to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. This was after King Jehoiakim, the queen mother, the court officials, the other officials of Judah, and all the craftsmen and artisans had been deported from Jerusalem. He sent the letter with Elasa, son of Shaphan, and Jemariah, son of Hilkiah, when they went to Babylon as King Zedekiah's ambassadors to Nebuchadnezzar. See, Nebuchadnezzar had still placed kind of a puppet king in Jerusalem. And this is what Jeremiah's letter said. This is what the Lord of Heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. Build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children and find spouses for them so that you may have grandchildren. Multiply. Do not dwindle away. And work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. 
This is what the Lord of Heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says. Do not let your prophets and fortune tellers who are with you in the land of Babylon trick you. Do not listen to their dreams because they are telling you lies in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. Verse 10. This is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon for 70 years. But then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised. And I will bring you home again. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster. To give you a future and a hope. And in those days when you pray, I will listen. In verse 13, if you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. I will be found by you, says the Lord. I will end your captivity and restore your fortunes. I will gather you out of the nations where I sent you. And will bring you home again to your own land. We thank the Lord for his word. Let's be seated together. You know, God is continuing to do that. Very often the prophecies in the Bible are multi-layers. They're not necessarily limited to one period of time. God is doing that right now. He is gathering the Jewish people from around the world. And he's resettling them. He's bringing them to Israel for his purposes. He's still doing that work. Well, the Jews had to have been just stunned at Jerusalem's fall. They heard all the warnings, as I said. But like us... They were probably thinking, well, the problems are someone else's problems. I'm pretty good. It's, it's my neighbor down the street. He's really the problem. They must have thought, this is God's holy city. There's, we've got all these promises about God will forever love this place. You know, it's, it will never be destroyed. But then that sacred, holy city was now in the hands of foreign pagans. It was an unthinkable travesty for them. If you want a glimpse into the sort of the emotional impact of this exile, I want you to jump with me to, to Psalm 137. You can either listen or follow along. I've got a reference up there on the screen. Psalm 137. Some of you will remember this. Uh, was adapted as a song by Boney M. about 40 years ago. Do you remember that one? By the rivers of Babylon. Here it is. Beside the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept. As we thought of Jerusalem, we put our we put our away our harps. We hang we hang them on the branches of poplar trees for our captors demanded a song from us. Our tormentors insisted on a joyful hymn. Sing us one of those songs of Jerusalem. But how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a pagan land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget how to play the harp. May my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I fail to remember you, if I don't make Jerusalem my greatest joy. O Lord, remember what the Edomites did on the day the armies of Babylon captured Jerusalem. Destroy it, they yelled. Level it to the ground. O Babylon, you will be destroyed. Happy is the one who pays you back for what you have done to us. Happy is the one who takes your babies and smashes them against the rocks. Do you think there's a little emotion there? A little anger? A little like, oh, oh, we are getting out of here and, and we are going to do some damage as we leave. That's the, that's the sentiment. That's what they're feeling. And then into, to this, Jeremiah writes this, this letter. They're not happy campers. They're like, they're kind of refugees, but they're forced refugees, captives. And now Jeremiah writes them and says, Settle down. Be a blessing. Be a blessing to the exact ones who've destroyed your lives. Can you imagine that? 
Work for the prosperity of your captors. Friends, if you're a believer in Jesus, your status is similar. You're here on this earth, but your true citizenship is elsewhere. It's in heaven. You are effectively living in exile. However, for most of us, our problem is actually the opposite of what the Hebrews are dealing with in Babylon. They wanted to leave. Too many of us are anxious to stay. Wanting to stay comfortably here as long as possible. But working for ourselves instead of for the prosperity of our city. However you look at it, Jeremiah's message is still relevant right now, today. We have a choice. We can sulk like they did about how hard things are and how terrible the politics are. And, you know, it's just, you know, it's just so much unfairness toward the church and persecution. And Or we could just ignore the city, maybe, and just live for ourselves, just get what we can while we're here. Or, or we can do as Jeremiah instructed. Settle in, plant gardens, raise families, and, verse 7, and work, I think, do I have that one on the screen? And work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. God's, God's disciplining the people, but he's actually sending them as missionaries to Babylon. Joe, people are going to say, that's too dangerous. You have four children. You're crazy. Why would you take four children into that neighborhood? Could it be because God loves that neighborhood? Right? We would think, I don't know. That's nice for Joe, but I would never do that. That's just not safe. In some ways, it's probably safer than some other areas. Because you're being a good neighbor. Let's put it this way. If you're taking notes today, you can write it down this way. Be a no-strings blessing. Wherever you are, wherever God takes you, be a no-strings blessing. No strings attached. No strings means we love without any return on the investment. It means we care for people without somehow subtly expecting to, to get a reward, somehow get a payoff. Somehow, you know, I have to be careful sometimes. Um, my wife cautions me about certain illustrations I use because I can easily use, for example, my neighbor came over this week. She texted me. She said, hey, can I borrow your lawnmower? My yard looks like Jumanji. Her um, her yard guy disappeared and she can't find him. And uh, I could easily tell you the story about how I went over and helped do her yard cause, so that you would think, oh, what a good guy Brian is. That's my, that's my, the return on my investment. If I'm mowing the neighbor's yard thinking, Oh, I'm going to tell my church about this. They're going to love me for this, right? That's, that's not the kind of love of your neighbors I'm talking about. It's, it's being, choosing to be a blessing, no strings attached. Now, why would we want to be a blessing here in Fresno or in 93720 or on Bergen Avenue where I live or on Plymouth Avenue where Todd Beamer Park is, will be later today or whatever street it is that you live on, or or why would we want to be a benefit to Copper Hills Elementary up the road or to the local Starbucks even, right? Why would Joe at Neighborhood Church bother with that community? Why, why, Why care when no one else cares? It's because when we're a blessing to our city, our city becomes a blessing to us and to the world and to God. 
God is pleased and Jesus is made known when we do that. So where there's peace and reconciliation, we live in safety. Where we serve our community, we help clear a path for the Holy Spirit to have an entryway, as, as Joe said, an on-ramp into people's lives. Not always, of course. Our Christian brothers and sisters in places like Syria and Iran and Iraq are being a blessing, but it might get them killed. And often does in those places. And yet they even consider that a blessing, an honor, a privilege to be counted worthy to suffer and die for Christ. Now you say, oh, Brian, you're, this is just all pretty self-serving. You know, being, being a blessing just so you get blessed back? I mean, aren't you just using people? No, I, I don't think it's so at all. Because even Jesus, Jesus put it this way in Luke um, chapter 16, verse 90. Jesus said this, use your worldly resources, your money. To benefit others and make friends. Then when your earthly possessions are gone, they will welcome you into an eternal home. What's happening? Jesus is saying, you're going to use money to invest in people's lives so that they come to faith in Christ. And they will welcome you. They'll say, thank you. Welcome. Thank you for making a way for me to know Christ Jesus. And you're going to say, "Uh, you know what? I'm glad I did. We're never going to make friends for eternity if we cannot be a no-strings-attached blessing to our neighborhood. Now, again, why does it matter? It matters because when those around you do well, you do better. I mean, think about it. When you have a decent relationship with your neighbors, doesn't your street feel like a better place to live? Doesn't it feel like more like home? It applies to our relationship with other churches, too. I, I love the other churches in our neighborhood. We're not competing with the other churches in our neighborhood. We're on the same team, right? Churches like Woodward Park and North Park and The Well and Clovis Hills. I want those churches to prosper and to grow and to do well and to reach the neighborhoods. I don't care if... The well is bigger than Bethany. I don't care if North Park is bigger than Bethany. That doesn't bother me a bit. I'm excited for that. The bigger they are, the more people they can reach. There's there's an engine in there when when that happens. Our goal is to get the news of Jesus Christ to as many as possible. We can't do it all ourselves. Think about that. We can't do it all ourselves. We're a pretty small church. So... How do we be a no-strings blessing? Let me make a few um, comments about that personally. I suppose it could apply to us as a church too, but a few things. One is just to get out of your bubble. Just to kind of leave the safety of, of what you know and love and the same people you talk to in the same spots you drive. Get out, experience more. Shop at a different place. Go to a different grocery store for a change. Be a, be a good people watcher. Try a different park. Get out of your bubble. Experience the world a little. Trust your neighbors to help you. That's a good one. Trust your neighbors to help you. When you when you're going on vacation, you don't don't you don't need to call a family member to come pick up your mail. Go talk to the neighbor. Say, hey, I'm gonna be gone for a few weeks or a few days. Would you mind keeping an eye on the place and picking up my mail? Here's a key to my mailbox and to my house. How many of you would be willing to do that? Can you watch out the place for us when we're gone? Because you know, if you're going to build a good relationship, it has to be two ways. I can't only be giving. I also have to be willing to receive. Some of you are great givers, but you have a hard time receiving anything. Let people help you to resist living in fear and suspicion. We do that a lot. 
we're particularly, you know, fearful or suspicious of, of the poor people or other religions. People are not your enemy. The devil uses people, but the people are not your enemy. Some of you, think about this. Sometimes we've got people who will sleep on our church grounds because they have no home. And they have found that this is a pretty, feels like a pretty safe place. There's a few nice benches around, some covered, sheltered areas. But most of us would walk up and say, I'm afraid. I'm afraid of that person. Now imagine that your life has had the kind of complications, maybe it's been addictions, maybe it's job loss, maybe it's mental health. Something got you to that place where your only option is to sleep on the grounds of a church. Now would you want those church people who approach you to be afraid of you? Wouldn't that just make it worse? Make room at your table. Make room in your life for, for people outside of your own family. I've got, I've got someone coming to stay at my house this week for a few nights. I, I really don't know him very well. Met him on a bus. Told him he could come stay with us. We'll see how that goes. Make room in your life for other people. Speak, this one's hard for me, speak well of your city. Don't be like, oh, Fresno. Fred, yes! Right? I'm guilty of that. Speak well of your city. Visit some poor areas. If you've got an errand to run, instead of just taking the, the 41 and the 180 and the 168, drive through some of the neighborhoods like, like Jackson and just get a feel for what it's really like in major parts of our city. Work at having a happy, healthy family. That's a great blessing to your community, to your neighborhood, when you're doing well. Oh, here's one. Keep your yard reasonably nice. It's a blessing to your community. It's a blessing to your neighborhood. That's a no-strings-attached thing you can do to make the world a better place for others. Wave hello when your neighbors drive by. You'll look like an idiot, but they'll love it. Right? They'll think you're weird, but they, people love weird people a little bit. Look, as a church, I expect us to grow. I want us to grow, to multiply, to not kind of circle our wagons. I want us to be alive and cheerful and just enjoy the life that God has given us. So, as Joe kind of referred to it, our party today in the park is really not about getting people to our church. It's about our church getting to people. That's the difference. Instead of saying, you all, everyone should come here. We're saying, look, we are the church. So we're just going to go be the church in our neighborhood today. And this is not about evangelism and talking people into being here. We'll invite them to stuff, but it's about loving our neighbors. No strings attached. Just because it's a good thing to do to bless them. Now, why else be a blessing? Well, like the Jews in Babylon, we may be here a lot longer than expected. We may be here a while. Jeremiah's prophecy ended up being correct. They, they had 70 years of captivity. They were effectively in a 70-year timeout as God's discipline. But after that, he promised good things would come. Verse, um, I believe it's verse 10. The Lord says, you'll be in Babylon for 70 years, but then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised, and I will bring you home again. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They're plans for good, not for disaster, to give you a future and hope in those days when you pray, I will listen. 
We love verse 11. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. We love that verse. We, I use it frequently for other people. I claim it for my own life. It's awesome. And you see it on posters and calendars and Christian art and everything. But did you know that it was in this context? It was on the front end of 70 years of difficulty. Oh, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, including 70 years of hardship. And these are good plans. What? How does this make any sense? Look, some of the things you pray for or some of the things you ask for or some of the things you invest in, whether spiritually or even financially, will have no benefit to you in this lifetime. Some of you are going to make investments that you're never going to see the fruit of it. It's, it's, you, you may not even see answers to prayer. You're praying things that are going to, that the Lord's going to answer in the life of your children or your grandchildren or your great grandchildren. And finally that prayer is going to be answered because that's the right timing for it. That's what happens. It's like planting a fruit tree. If you plant a fruit tree, you're not going to get fruit in the first few years. And what happens if you plant that tree and then you move away to someone else? Or what would happen if you said to your kids, hey, I want to plant a fruit tree in your backyard? Be a blessing to them. You never eat a single, you know, peach off that tree. But it's still worth it because it's a blessing to someone else. So in the case of these Jews in Babylon, immediate deliverance would not actually have been the best thing for them. They had to learn this, some lessons in that 70 years. The, the land even had to catch up on 70 years of Sabbath. Second Chronicles talks about that, that, that the land needed its rest because the people hadn't given it its seven year rest on the land. And this stubborn, this generation of stubborn, rebellious, you know, people honestly needed to die off. And, and the Jews needed time to experience repentance for their sins. Sometimes an immediate answer for us or immediate deliverance is not the best thing for us. Sometimes it has to get worse before it gets better in our lives. You parents know this. Sometimes, sometimes you have to let your children, whether they're little ones or adults, sometimes you have to let them suffer the consequences of their bad decisions for a while. It's better for them. We fail them if we bail them out all the time. The promise of verse 11, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. The promise of verse 11 can be trusted only if you know that God loves you. Because a person who loves you can be trusted to make good plans for you. Right? If someone doesn't love you, so I got plans for you. Well, that's scary, right? Or it's, I've got plans for you. Same words, very different meaning. Right? You husbands and wives know this. One of you is probably a planner. And you say, oh, I've made some plans for Friday night. Or I've made a plans for a vacation. doesn't always work out that way. You should see some of the places I've had our family stay on vacations. It's, uh, we stayed at an Airbnb on this last trip. It wasn't really a vacation, in part because of where we stayed. But, you know, we were in this crazy, run-down neighborhood that looked really good in the pictures. But once we got there, there we were. Um, but I had good plans for my family. Look, if you've never come to that place of trusting Jesus Christ for salvation, or you've never experienced Jesus, honestly, even if you've never, if you can honestly say, I don't think I've ever experienced Jesus for real in my life. I've been a church, I've been religious, I've been a Christian, but I don't think I really have experienced Jesus. Listen, you have a promise too. Verse 13 says that if you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. If you seek for me with all your, if you search for me with all your heart, you will find me. It may be helpful to remember that these Jews were plenty religious. 
They have their law and they have their temple and then their proud last names and they're their Jewish lineage. And God took it all away to get their attention. So that instead of knowing, so that instead of just knowing religion, they would know God. They needed to know him, not just religion. And I worry sometimes as American Christians that we've come to love Christian culture more than we've come to love Jesus. I I worry that sometimes we love our Bible studies and our Christian books and our Christian music and radio stations and bumper stickers and T-shirts and charitable donations. We love those things more than we love Jesus. And in that, sometimes we've missed the message and we've missed the mission that God has for us because we love the comfort of our Christian stuff. And what if God were to take it all away? What if God is in the process of taking that away right now? What if tomorrow, one of, one of his sweeping executive orders, the president said, no more charitable receipts. Would you continue to give faithfully to the Lord's work? Would you continue to tithe if there's no tax deduction? The message, the message is this, that you were created by God to know him and to know his love for you. And to love him and to love others. That's the message. God created you and loves you and knows you. And that faith in Jesus makes that relationship possible. The mission is to make Jesus known to others. The Jews were to be a light to the Gentiles. That was their calling. That was their, that was their mission. Instead, instead of being a light to the Gentiles, they took the darkness of the Gentiles and they made it their own. Oh, wow. I've done that. Take the darkness of the world and make it your own. Instead of being a light to our communities and our neighborhoods. These guys would adopt pagan worship of those around them. They, they abandoned the mission that they were called to in favor of comfort and security and religion. And God stripped all of that away. So that in their suffering they would come to know God. And then they would come to serve Him and worship Him and be a blessing to others. Babylon would not be an easy place for them to live. And in that place, in that place, God says, be a blessing. No strings attached. To their captives, be a blessing. Our, our time here is not always easy. I, I know that. But the God who loves you and he loves me and he loves each person in our city, each person, He says the same thing. Be a blessing. Be a blessing. Work and pray for the welfare of this place. One of the things that we're going to do today, my hope is that when we get, I was there at the park yesterday, it was kind of trash lying around. I hope that when we leave the park today, it looks better than when we get there. We want to be a blessing to those places that we go. Right? And secondly, we take a long view of God's mercy and his grace. I may, I may have skipped that over that point when I was talking about, but this is the point is take a long view of God's mercy and his grace. For these people, it was a 70 year plan. But the future was coming, the hope and the future was coming for those who will seek God wholeheartedly. Can we work and pray for the betterment of our communities? Let's let's pray together. Let's stand together as we close. God, we. We know you loved your people, and yet you let them suffer. And that's hard for us to put those two things together. 
that somehow when life isn't easy, it's still okay. It can still be good. And Lord, we, we just, we want to be a light to your, to this world. We want to be a shining, bright light to this community, to the streets we live on, the workplaces we're at, the places where we play. God, we, that's our desire to be the church. To not turn in and huddle, but to open up and live for you right in front of everybody. God, I pray that you would help us to do that and to do it joyfully. To be a blessing to the people around us so that you can bless them. And then we will experience your blessing in the process. We will experience your favor in the process. When our city does well, we do well. God, we thank you for Jeremiah. We thank you for preserving these words for us that they continue to teach us today. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your care for us. In Jesus' name, amen.